I'm Michael Krasny, and allow me to welcome you to another weekly episode of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. Whether you are new to us and hearing this podcast for the first time or have heard us before but have not yet joined, we urge you to sign up and be a member and become involved and give your support simply by going to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with someone I've talked with on numerous occasions over the years, one of the world's most famous master chefs and culinary educator, Jacques Pepin, who is also the author of over 30 books and the Emmy award-winning star of 12 highly praised television cooking shows. In addition to having been the personal chef for three French heads of state, including Charles de Gaulle, he is the recipient of three of France's highest honors, including the highest French order of merit, the French Legion of Honor. He also holds 24 James Beard Foundation cooking awards and a BA and an MA in French literature, and has taught at the Culinary Arts Program at Boston University, as well as having served as Dean of Special Programs at the International Culinary Center in New York City. In addition, he's a much-admired working artist, and his most recent book, which includes his illustrations, is Cooking My Way, Recipes and Techniques for Economical Cooking. It includes 150 recipes, and I'm pleased to warmly welcome the legendary Jacques Pepin to this episode of Great Matter with Michael Krasny. How are you, my friend? Oh, boy. How are you, Michael? I think the last time that you interviewed me must be like seven, eight years ago, maybe even more. It's too long. uh, It's just good to be back with you again. Seven years is biblical. I mean, we we used to, I think, meet on more occasions than that, but it's delightful to be back with you again. And this is uh, this new book of yours. First of all, I want to congratulate you on it. It has some wonderful recipes in it. Cooking My Way sounds like Sinatra, the chairman of the board, but... Again, right. we're kind of bad. Your way goes back to your boyhood often and growing up in France at the end of World War II, which really necessitated a kind of, to put it mildly, thrifty cooking. And that's what this book is about, right? Yes, to a certain extent, whatever. You know, very often I do, I have so many books because usually when you do a television series, then there is a theme to it and you end up putting your knowledge about that very specific area of food. Like I wrote an article in the New York Times in the 80s for like 10 years or so on called The Purposeful Cook, which was to cook for a family of six for the minimal amount of money. So uh, the focus there was, of course, economy in the kitchen. And that's what I took back in, in that book, that idea. Uh, it's interesting for a, for a chef to put your knowledge, if you want, uh, I mean, I did a book for the Cleveland Clinic for cardiac patients for weight loss. You know, it had nothing to do with uh, fast food my way. I did uh, other type of theory, which, uh, which is good. But I enjoy doing that book, and I do more probably illustration of my stuff than I ever did before. So the publisher is very generous with me this way. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have a generous publisher uh, and also good editors, I assume, uh, but these yes. recipes don't have to be followed specifically or very carefully. I mean, people should think that they can take them and experiment with them like you experiment. Yes, absolutely. Yet, however, I would say that the first time you do a recipe for wherever you take that recipe from, you should do it exactly the way it is uh, without changing it. If you like it, then you're likely to do it again. And after two or three times, you say, oh, I'm going to put more tomato in it. I'm going to put more. And a year later... You transform that recipe and uh, and uh, 
in a, in a sense, manage it to your own taste and your sense of aesthetic, and you don't even remember where it comes from. That's the process that should be done, but not the first time. Well, there's been ravings about some of the recipes in this book already, and your recipes through the years, of course. Uh, in fact, um, there was a, there's a fellow who does an online event that was posted on our website. Uh, he went up to see you in your home in Connecticut. His name is Alex, and he's also French. And oh. it was fascinating to hear his raving about your omelet. And I, that's what I've been hearing from the people I work with because they've been experimenting. A lot of it has to do, as I said, with the way you hold the frying pan, the way you stir things up. But we're talking about something that's called a perfect omelet. Now, how does Jacques Pepin decide what is a perfect omelet or, for that matter, a perfect souffle? Well, it's a good point. I mean, basically, I do three, four, five different types of omelet. My mother, I mean, a restaurant in France, I never done a classic French omelette that I do. It's more in the style of the, the, the omelette that you will get in a regular diner, that is with larger curd, two more brown on top, a bit tougher differently, or you have a flat omelette, which is different as well. The classic French omelette that I do uh, is not necessarily better, it's different. That is, you move the eggs very fast, as fast as you can, so that you end up with Scramble eggs, like when you do scramble eggs with a whisk, very, very smooth texture. And as soon as they barely all together, you incline the pan so that the mixture goes on one side and you just lift up one lip, the other lip, and invert it in the, in the plate, you know. And that's the classic, uh, the very French classic omelette. I mean, the ultimate omelette that I did, I think I did <laughs> once in one of the little shows that I do was for my wife. Gloria, who love caviar. And uh, so I do a one egg omelette uh, in that way. And I stuff the center with, uh, with, uh, with either trout or, or salmon eggs, which are red, inverted and cover the top with payushnaya. Payushnaya is pressed caviar. It's uh, done in a certain way. So I can take a piece of it and press it and make it very, very smooth, like a dough. And I cover the, the omelette with that black, that black uh, cover, you know, if you want. So that was the ultimate omelette, yes. <laughs> Speaking of caviar, we did, a, just as a kind of promotion for another podcast, we did we did one with Narcy David, who I'm sure you know. Oh, yes, very well. I remember having dinner at his home, and there were so many different varieties of caviar. I mean, it's, yes. it's hard to choose sometimes, isn't it? Yes, but I, I remember very well his caviar, too, he did at the beginning. But now the caviar that uh, I do, actually, I developed the recipe and I gave it, it uh, uh, it's uh, for California Caviar Company. It's a payushnaya, which is pressed caviar. When you call something caviar, it has to be, uh, it has to be uh, sturgeon eggs. Otherwise, you have to define it, but it's salmon caviar or, 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 you know, trout caviar or whatever. So if you say caviar, it's, and it could be beluga, severiga, etc. So that's different type of sturgeon, larger, smaller. But at the end of the season, usually they took whatever is left, overripe eggs, underripe eggs, to put it together, salt it, and press it. And you end up with something which is like gum, you know. Uh, it, it's like a dough, uh, that pressed caviar, which is called payushnaya. And it's amazing because when I lived in Paris in the 50s and we served it, uh, it was always... The, the, the beluga, which is larger get, which is again the law in this country now anyway, and then the osetra and the severiga and payushnaya. 
Uh, in the 80s, I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room in New York for many years. Again, we had the Osetra, Severuga, and Osetra, I mean Beluga, Osetra, Severuga, and the Payusea, the press caviar. And for some reason, that press caviar kind of disappeared. Now, I talked to young chef and I said, have you ever heard of Payusea or press caviar? No, I never heard of it. So it's, uh, it's interesting. But now I have done that recipe, which uh, they sell in California caviar, and uh, they did a great job with it. Of course, most people, when they think of uh, cooking economically, they don't think of caviar, do they? Uh, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. But occasionally you have to indulge, you know, so. <laughs> but it turns out that cooking economically is tied to cooking seasonally. and Oh, yeah, absolutely. Close connection, integral connection. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, but but not even cooking economically but any type of cooking in my opinion is tied up to uh, to the season you know i mean there is no no question that in full summer when uh, the tomato are in the garden and when they are just ripe this is really when the tomato tastes like a tomato first secondly that's when it's nutritionally probably the best and thirdly that's when it's really cheap you know so you have to follow the season if you really follow the season the ingredients are less expensive, although now it's difficult, you know, because in the regular supermarket you have you have strawberry from January to December, and uh, which actually tastes uh, pretty the same. So when it's really the time of strawberry, and you go to a farm and get a basket of it, you can see the difference there, you know. That. Another thing I really sort of cherish from your new book is you say a great cook, which you are, of course should never be apologetic about leftovers. Well, no, certainly. Well, you should never call it leftover uh, because you create... I mean, you roast a chicken and people uh, love the chicken. Well, you try to reheat it and it tastes reheated too. It doesn't work this way. If you break it apart too and you do a cream sauce and mushroom and, and you do, you know, a chicken pot pie type of thing, people may like it even better than the original. It is not leftover. It's creating a recipe with those ingredients at that point. And that's how I looked at leftover, you know. And, and, and this is where I recognize a good cook for me. You know, if I go into the kitchen and I think someone who can use everything and everything leftover, he does something else with it, give it to the employee or whatever, I am much more impressed by someone who does a plate which looks like a, a painting with a little drop of uh, what I call... Uh, what I call uh, punctuation cooking, when they have a little bottle and they do a drop, a drop, a comma, a drop, <laughs> all around the plate, which can be tiring, you know. I also heard you say that the way to uh, be a great cook is just to have people wait and wait and wait for oh, the sure. food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you wait long enough, but whatever you give them is terrific. You know, so. Well, keep yeah. your trimmings. Uh, that's uh, Jacques Vapin's advice, but also... Uh, right. You, you talk about, for example, the versatility of, of a turkey, or for that matter, any bird, any any form of poultry, uh, and you should not waste anything on that. No, absolutely. You know, I mean, a turkey, uh, you can roast it, then do a pot pie, then do a stew with rice. And if you have a piece of meat uh, of the breast, you take out leftover, I mean, you can slice it very thin, raw like veal, and saute it with a, with mushroom and all that. Yeah, there is a great deal of versatility in all of those, uh, you know, in a turkey as well as in a chicken. And I mean, if you know a little bit, but any good cook, that is home cook, certainly home cook during the time of uh, when I was a kid, 
uh, would know that. I mean, there is that uh, economy become very essential in the kitchen. Not only the economy of buying ingredients, economy of motion, economy of time. You know, I use a food processor. I may use it four times before I washed it. You know, the first time I, may, I need breadcrumb, so I may do it, I don't have to wash it. Maybe after that it's mushroom. Uh, maybe after that it's shallot. And after that I may do chicken or fish, and then at that point I have to wash it. So it becomes automatic like this, that economize your time. Or when you do a skillet, you rinse it briefly and use it again and so forth. Uh, when you peel something, you may peel it on top of the garbage can directly too. So, you know, th those things become habits in the kitchen and make your life easier. Yeah. You've talked a lot through the years about the economy of time. Uh, we've got this label fast food, though, uh, and some people find it pejorative. Uh, there's also Carlo Petrini, who started a whole slow food revolution. Uh, what right, about these right, labels? Right. I mean... From well, your perspective. I mean, th th those are labeled. I mean, slow food is great. I mean, there is a big question, but fast food is just as good. Uh, I did two series on television of 26 shows, but, and the two series called Fast Food My Way. And I, use, I wanted to show people how to use the food from the supermarket as a prep cook. When you are in a conventional kitchen as a chef, you have the prep cook who come and he bone out the chicken, he bone out the fish, he slice the, the mushroom, he chop the shallot, he wash the spinach. So you have all of that ready in front of you. So you are there, someone ordered a piece of fish, it's right there, you put some shallot on top, a dash of wine, post it for two minutes, finish it with a piece of butter, and you can do that dish in like three, four, five, six minutes because the prep are there. So I wanted to show the people to go to the supermarket and buy pre-sliced mushroom and uh, skinless, boneless breasts of chicken, and different type of thing. You have a non-stick pan, you go home, and you can do a dish or two, uh, you know, in, in, in minutes. It's not the least expensive way of cooking, because it may be a bit more expensive, but on the other hand, you save a great deal of time. And in those shows that I did, in the series Fast Food My Way, I usually had the package of the supermarket in front of me, and within 30 minutes, I would do three or four dishes, you know, out of that. So that was... Again, a way of showing the people how to use the supermarket in that way. Yeah, I think I interviewed you about that book, among many others. And uh, Yeah, this one is a while ago, yes. <laughs> We've got lots of questions coming in. I want to go to some of them, and then uh, lots of things that I want to talk with you about. But this is Sylvia from Tuscany, Italy, who says, you've written so many fabulous cookbooks. Where would you suggest someone begin if they don't have one of your books yet? Oh, well, you know, start with bread and butter, you <laughs> know. This is about the best thing you can eat if you find a great, a great piece of baguette and a great piece of butter. But frankly, you know, people say, I don't know how to cook. And I say, do you have a friend who cook? I said, yes. I said, the next time you go to your friend, you're invited. Say, can I come an hour ahead, give you a hand in the kitchen? And you bring a bottle of wine and you drink that bottle of wine with her or with him, starting cooking in the kitchen. And after that, even the chicken is a bit burned. It doesn't make any difference anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, go with someone. And as I said, you know, sometimes very simply how to do one simple dish, even a sandwich and all that. And it kind of grow on you. And eventually, you know, you, you cook, you know how to cook. Talking with Jacques Pepin and T.J. Asher wants to know, for any given recipe, is cooking technique more important or are ingredients more important or does it depend on the dish? 
Good point. It depends on the dish, but I mean, basically, the ingredient for me is more important than the technique, although you can destroy the ingredient if you have bad technique. So that, that, that's the point. Conversely, you know, uh, when I was an apprentice, and that was 1949, <laughs> so a little while ago, uh, you spent three years of apprenticeship, you know, the chef tell you do this, you, you would never have said why. If you say why, it's because I just told you. That's what about the end of it. There was no written recipe or anything. So you spend the first year of apprenticeship, where at that time we killed chicken and rabbit and, and uh, pluck the chicken and the rabbit and, uh, you know, scale the fish and bone them. And you work, you work like that over and over again uh, without really that much instruction. You just repeat, repeat, repeat. So you learn through a kind of osmosis. And eventually the chef, for me, after a year or so, he said, tomorrow you start at the stove. I had never been to the stove. Well, I went to the stove to put, uh, to start it in the morning. It was at that point with, with wood, you know, paper and wood and then coal on top of it. And you had to keep it warm. So it was a whole knowledge of keeping that stove really hot and so forth. But uh, I started at the stove and unbeknownst to me, I knew how to do it. I started doing so. The learning was more osmotic at that point. It was, it was different, but it was a kind of repeat, repeat, repeat. So you become very good with technique because when you are a professional chef, the technique are very important. You know, it's 11 o'clock and at 12 o'clock you have 100 people sitting down. So you have to do you know, three cases of carrot. I mean, it's not a question of doing carrot or your potato too. You have to do it within 10 or 15 minutes. You do a case of carrot and so forth. So the technique become very important. So uh, as a professional chef, you can't really run a kitchen unless you're a good technician, in my opinion. And uh, on the other hand, I know a fair amount of chefs who are very good technicians, run a kitchen. The food is okay, but they are relatively lousy cook. The food is not that great. <laughs> Conversely, I know people who cook at home that have been invited. The food is fantastic. Well, the techniques are pretty bad, so the kitchen looks like a disaster area, you know, with enough leftover for a week. To, so, you know, those are different type of, uh, of way of cooking, you know. What's indispensable for home cooking? I mean, especially for people who are really just beginning fledglings, neophytes, whatever you want to call them. Yes. Well, I mean, you have to have a, a good a good stove, you know, a good skillet, a good board, and a, and, a, and a sharp knife. I mean, that's a good start. If you have two or three things like that that you can rely on, without any question, and buy buy ingredient of the best possible quality you can find, and do the simplest possible recipe. You know, I mean, everyone can take a tomato which is ripe and slice it put a bit of coarse salt on top, the best possible olive oil that you can find, a dash of basil on top, and you have a great tomato salad. You know, I mean, this is not, uh, yeah, you can do that, sure. Just a comment here by Hank from Boise, Idaho. He says, with the cost of eating out skyrocketing, isn't cooking at home becoming the economical choice, even with fine ingredients like caviar? Uh, an important point. Yeah, this is a very good point. You know, we started the pandemic, I mean, uh, three years ago, my daughter said, you know, could you do a recipe for, for Facebook? She does Facebook. I don't really do Facebook. And she said, could you do a recipe of like three minutes, four, five minutes, two for Facebook so people uh, could cook at home with what's left over or this? So we had, I think, like 300,000 people at the time. I think we have 1.8 million people now. So, uh, yes, a lot, a lot of people are cooking 
at home, certainly. And I'm sure that the pandemic caused uh, many divorces. <laughs> it also brought people together in some ways. I have many, many letter papers. Oh, I start cooking, you know, during the pandemic and, uh, and so forth, simple stuff at home. Yeah, so it's both, you know. There's a chat who says, who inspires you as an artist in paint and how did you begin down that path? Well, I started, uh, when I came to this country in 1959, I went to Columbia University and uh, I never, you know, I left school when I was 13 in France. And I had the chance of taking a couple of classes in sculpture and in drawing, I believe. And that kind of stopped me. And at that point, we were a whole bunch of friends who rented a house uh, in the Woodstock, upstate New York. I mean, in the Catskill, which is kind of a, an artist uh, uh, area too. So we all started redoing old furniture and uh, painting or doing one thing or another. And then it stays with me and uh, I've been painting for half a century. And I don't really, if I go to a museum, then I get inspired by whatever, whoever it is, whether from, you know, from Picasso to Manet to, to uh, any abstract painting too. I always get something out of uh, looking at uh, the way people look at it with a different way of, that I would look at. And uh, it's there is similarity for me in the painting and in the cooking. You know, when I start a painting, often I don't really know exactly where I'm going. And at some point, however, uh, the painting kind of take a hold of me and I react to it. And I react and I put that color or that shape there without trying to uh, to validate it in some way. I just feel good and, and I do that. Uh, the painting end up being the way it is, good or not. And in cooking, you know, when you work at the stove and you have an order and you do a dish and you add and taste and add and taste and keep adding. See, the beauty of that in a great restaurant, you have certain specialty, let's say a, a chicken with a, with a morel sauce and cream sauce. So if you're in that restaurant, you may do that 10, 12, 15 times the same night order. Well, if someone were exactly taking the note of what you do, if you do it 15 times, 15 times it would be different. Not very different, but slightly different because the breast of chicken is slightly thicker or smaller, or you have a copper pot or you have aluminum and so forth, or it's humid or it's not humid, whatever it is, you react to it, you taste and adjust, taste and adjust. And the idea is that at the end, that dish, those 13 dishes you went that night taste exactly the same, even though you did not do them exactly the same. You know, so there is that type of... Uh, automatic uh, response, you know, to the food uh, that you do, which is a bit similar for me than when I paint, you know. Well, both the artistic touch, but in different ways, the repetition more in the cooking. And I remember asking you many years ago about all the preparation that goes into cooking a big meal and what do you get out of it? And you said the memories. Uh, uh, sure. But when you put something down on a canvas, it's there and it stays yeah. there. There's a much more enduring quality. It's not something you just ingest and... No question about it. It's a very interesting point for me because I look at painting that I did 50 years ago and I would never be able to do that. I'm not saying that they are bad or good. It's just that I don't feel the same. I say, how did I do that? So, you know, but I can't. I would love to be able to taste the food that I did 50, 60 years ago. I would taste it and probably say, wow, that's, you know, but I can't, of course. Co the cooking is very evanescent and uh, you eat and it, it disappeared, but memory are there, yes. And you're gifted at both. And speaking of memory, I was thinking when I was reading about the fact that you proposed a PhD dissertation on food in French literature and they thought it was frivolous 
And that, yeah. now there are all these kind of dissertations and theses done on food and literature. I couldn't yeah. help thinking in my own memory of the fact that I can't eat a Madeleine cookie without thinking of Proust. It's impossible. Of course, of course. And there's yeah. so much of that. I mean, yeah. why, does the, I mean the, why doesn't the world have this work that could have been done as a doctoral dissertation? I mean, you've got all kinds of honorary doctorates of yeah. humane litters and so forth. But. You're absolutely right. I mean, I love Proust. Proust and the affective memory are very important. People don't realize that the memory of your brain, if you tell me, where were you in 1969? My brain will go there. So oh, I was here, there too. It's a different type of memory. The affective memory of Proust is that I walk in the wood with my dog and I smell, all of a sudden I smell mushroom and I'm eight years old going mushrooming with my brother and, and, and my father and so forth. Involuntary so, memory, Proust calls it. Yes, so, so, so the affective memory, the memory of the senses, the smell, the eye, the taste, the hearing is totally a different type of memory, which, of course, for the cook is very important, yes. Exceedingly yes. important for the cook. And here's Mathieu who says, at the end of the day, what does Monsieur Pepin cook for himself? Well, whatever is left in the refrigerator, my, my wife used to call that fridge soup. And fridge soup is high up on the refrigerator. And that I wilted salad, a piece of onion, some carrot, whatever, put it together, do a soup, finish it with a handful of pasta. That's pretty common at our house. But uh, yeah, usually and simpler and simpler. There is absolutely no question as you get older. And I turned 88, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, the, your metabolism change, you do. And uh, as I was, when I was a young chef, I probably add more to the plate. You add more, you add more, you test it, you add more too. And now you do the reverse. You retrieve, you take away, you take away, you take away from the plate to be left with something more essential and important. As I say, like a great tomato with a bit of salt and, and olive oil on top. So those things, yeah, change. So your idea and, and your metabolism, your age, and certainly now uh, the cooking that I do, is pretty straightforward and simple with a couple of ingredients without too much embellishment. <laughs> Still pretty vital, uh, I must say, fully vital uh, at the age of 88. Uh, and uh, also my, my own memory is working back somewhat. I remember an interview I did with you and Julia Child many years ago, and she was talking about how people are, these weren't her words, of course, but dissing meat and the consumption of meat, and she was making a case for how important and vital meat is to our diets and protein oh, sure. and all the rest of it. I wonder, though, with all these changes and all this emphasis on vegetarianism, veganism, even use, not using sugar, we did a whole podcast with Bob Lustig about the evils yeah. of sugar as he sees them, too much salt, worried in the diet and everything. We've, we've had some things that have changed in quantum ways, extraordinary and dramatic ways about right. what we're supposed to eat. How does this affect you in the kitchen? Well, you know, if you look at people in Sardinia or, or Sicily or in the south of France who follow the season, you know, and, and use those dishes over and over again, I mean, those, those ingredients over and over again, when it's the time of uh, artichokes or, or, or uh, you know, asparagus or whatever, that's what they use. Uh, but, and, you know, if you follow the season like this, you never have too much sugar, too much of this, too much of that. You go back to something very simple and very classical. And I, again, I will emphasize the following of the season, although it's not that easy because, as I said, 
when I go to a farm occasionally here, but otherwise in the supermarket. But even in the supermarket, I also try to buy something organic, fresher, and so forth. However, if I'm in the supermarket and I have carrots who are organic, who are totally dry out and soft, I'll buy the regular carrot too. I'll go for the best quality ingredient that I can find. But uh, yes, uh, simplicity is, uh, is more and more important in my cooking now than it probably ever was. You know? Well, here's a perfectly appropriate question from one of our devoted members, Reed up in Santa Rosa here in Northern California, who wants to know, what Jacques' thoughts about vegetarian cuisine are and how he approaches planning a tasty and balanced meatless meal. Well, you know, I have asked, I've been asked several times, why don't you do a vegetarian cookbook? I can't take any of my book, and if I break it down, I never did, but even if I look at that latest book, I'm sure that 70 or 80% of the book is either vegetable or fruit or whatever I did, and, uh, or maybe some fish and less than probably 15% are meat and all that. So I never felt uh, the, the, the use of really writing a book specifically vegetarian. I mean, people can take my book and there is a lot of vegetable, fruit and so forth in it. So, because I, I you know, without any question, uh, 20 years ago, I would love a steak of like 10 ounce, uh, 12 ounce steak to which I would enjoy. Now, I rarely, I don't really enjoy that much now. And if I have a steak after three, four ounces, two, I have enough. To, so again, it's a question of uh, your taste change and your habit change. But I, I, it's fine. I mean, if people are vegetarian, they feel that way about it. And I have nothing against it. But I have plenty, plenty vegetable in my book, fruit too, that if people are interested, they can look at those. Do you still have a special taste, though, for French food? Uh, I remember Woody Allen saying, French food, all those sauces, <laughs> you know, yeah. all those sauces right. turned it into a joke. But, I mean, just in terms of your own palate. Not really. I mean, I don't think that I'm very uh, uh, chauvinistic. I mean, this way, I've been here over 60 years. And uh, I remember even after 10 years I was here, my mother would come and I do stuff for her. So she said, oh, I've never had that too. I mean, it was totally American. It was not French for her anymore. So I've never really tried to be French I do dishes in France or, or occasionally, but, uh, you know, my wife was born in New York City, but from Puerto Rican mother and Cuban father. So whether I do an arroz con pollo or a, <laughs> a black bean soup, so you would see, uh, even, it's, good, it's a good question because often I'm considered maybe the quintessential French chef. And you open one of my book at page 32, you have a, a black bean soup with a slice of banana on top and cilantro. And then you have a, a shirasi sushi in the book and a, and, a, and a lobster roll from Connecticut. So I am probably the essential American cook now, I mean, in my opinion. <laughs> I think that fits. And I, I was just thinking about the fact that we're in winter now and your menu, you have menus for each season, including menus for winter. And here right. it is, arroz con pollo. Uh, oh, yeah. But the first winter menu is garlic soup along with arroz con pollo and crepes confiture. Uh, and uh, yeah. that's uh, that's what, fruit, I guess, isn't it? Uh, no, confiture is just jam. You know, like, so. It's like jam, a processed jam. Yes, you know, yes. Yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, I, I always have a jar of... I love apricot and raspberry and so forth. And I can show when my, my daughter was small, 
And now even with my granddaughter, she would bring someone to sleep overnight in the morning. I made crepe for them. So I always say, okay, they sit on one side of the counter and on the other side, I say, okay, I put one tablespoon of butter in that skillet to melt. By the time that's, that butter is melted, we're going to start the crepe. So as the butter is melting, I put half a cup of flour, an egg, a bit of salt, a bit of uh, milk. I mix in a thing, add the melted butter and start the first crepe. So within five minutes that they were there, they had a crepe uh, behind the counter, one crepe after the other. So they filled them up with a bit of sugar and butter, all with grated chocolate, all with the jam, you know. So that was a, a very family type of <laughs> recipe. A lot of people feel that they're connected to your family. They almost feel like extended family. They know Claudine, they know Story, they know your son-in-law. Yeah. And in fact, we should mention the fact that the Jacques Pepin Foundation right. has done some really not only admirable, but extraordinary work just through community organizations, right. working with people who are homeless, who are addict, uh, have right. ad addictions, uh, also uh, in many cases uh, people who haven't thought of any way of getting a job or any kind of work, and they go through essentially culinary training. Talk about the foundation. And the work. Yes, I mean, it was established in 216, I believe. So my, uh, by my son-in-law, really, the professional chef, and was and about 10, I think 12, 12, 13 years ago, decided to teach. He come to Johnson & Well in Rhode Island there and uh, in the culinary program and start teaching. And he went on to get his, uh, his master and his PhD um, in education. And so now he's a food professor and he's really a very good writer too. And about five, six years ago, he said, you know, you've been teaching all your life. You've done hundreds and hundreds of shows. Who do you think you'd like to teach now? So we talked about it. And I said, maybe people who have been a bit disenfranchised by life, people who come out of jail, you know, addict, former drug addict, uh, you know, homeless people we've done. So we work with community kitchen throughout the country. Uh, showing with my book, technique, uh, video, and so forth, uh, how to kind of uh, redo a life. I mean, I feel that I can take someone and in six weeks in a kitchen, if someone likes it, uh, I can uh, show him or her how to do clean up salad and slice uh, peel onion and slice uh, potato and do this so that you know the basic and you start. And if you continue there and do work, five years later, maybe you're the chef there. You're in charge and you kind of redo your life and uh, feel good about yourself. And we, we certainly need people like that a great deal. So uh, it's been very successful and uh, very gratifying in many ways. You know, I've been to many of those uh, community kitchen and cook a bit with them and showing them one thing. And, you know, there is no political implication in what we do in the kitchen. You know, we have that sign who said, everyone look the same in the eye of the stove. And to a certain extent, it's true, you know. Uh, the color of your skin is kind of immaterial when it's 11 o'clock and you have 100 people sitting down at, at 12, so you really have to move, you know, to cook. So, uh, yes, this has been the work of my son-in-law, not my work. Uh, you know, he's the one who, who sort of the idea, he's the one who implemented it, he's the one who worked on it. And it's been very successful. And my daughter, on the other hand, has done Facebook there. And uh, again, uh, I am grateful to that because <laughs> I, I would never have done those things uh, just with myself. I'm not very good at that, you know, but they did it. And uh, Well, it has your name on it. And congratulations yeah. uh, to your son-in-law for all the fine things that have resulted from this. How many people do you think you've got uh, ultimately in the employment world now as a result of this? 
who are employed now, because there were many people who were unemployable who oh, yes, were yes, helped by yes. this foundation, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know the number exactly, but I know that in our, he has done another thing too during the, 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 the we used to do a fair amount of uh, fundraising to raise money for the foundation. And during the pandemic, it slowed down considerably. So he decided to ask 50 chefs in New York, I mean, in the US to do a video for us give us the video for the foundation to show people how to cook. So, you know, from, from uh, Martha Stewart to Richard Ray, from Thomas Keller to, to uh, uh, you know, Daniel Boulou and so Tom Colicchio, all the great chefs in this country, he asked 50, they all said yes. People are very generous in our business. So he asked another 50, they said yes. And another 50, they said yes. And another 50, I think now we are at 200 or 250 chefs probably most of the known in this country who have done a video for us too, which is available to students and all that. I think the foundation, uh, it's, I think it's $40, $40 a year or something like that to, to be a member of, uh, and be, you know, be exposed to all of those 200 show video, plus all the things that we do in the foundation. So he's done great stuff this way that I would never, never have thought of doing myself, you know. Yeah, well, kudos. Um, here's, um, in fact, Jeff, who's part of our team. He's down on Miami Beach, and he wants to know, have you been approached to build an AI chef Jacques Pepin to help us cook? Would you consider it? Well, AI, no, I don't know. Uh, you mean uh, artificial intelligence? I get scared with that. I mean, a friend of mine came the other day, and he's very good at that, which I'm not. And he goes on his computer and he says, uh, could you give me a recipe, make a recipe in the style of Jacques Pepin? And within like five minutes, he had a, a recipe of chicken done, which I could have done. I mean, I style it, it. I thought it was pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Lots of scary things about AI. We've done yeah. some podcasts and looked into that and delved into that. And here's Lisa in San Francisco. It says, I read an article recently that you eat seven raisins soaked in gin every night. Can you tell us why? Sounds delicious. Uh, yes, because someone told me that that would uh, be good for me, extend my life or whatever it does. I don't know whether it does any of this, but I like the taste of it. So, so I do it. We started doing that with my wife a few years ago, yes, and become a habit. And so. A lot of things that are supposed to extend our life, Jacques. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on Benforma now because I'm diabetic, and there are people in Silicon Valley who think that's going to extend, young people especially, extend <laughs> yeah. their lives. I'm not confident about all that, but we shall see. So, yeah, I want to actually talk about your, your life and your work and your career somewhat, um, because a turning point for you, a major turning point for you, was back in the 70s when you had that terrible accident in your car with a okay. deer. I was thinking about it just the other yeah. night as a deer ran in front of my car. Um, but you want to talk about that? Because that made you into a TV star, basically, didn't it? Well, it did change my life completely, certainly, because I had 12 fractures and I broke my back and my pelvis uh, in three places and my two hip and leg, arm, <laughs> and they didn't think that I would leave and then they didn't think that I would walk and eventually I still have a drop foot because I severed my sciatic nerve uh, when I broke my back. Uh, but it did change my life. I moved into the direction I had already started I was at Columbia and already started writing for uh, House Beautiful and even the New York Times. So it pushed me in that direction, certainly because to be behind the stove in a regular restaurant, 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week, it's pretty, pretty taxing, you know. So it, yeah, it moved, uh, it moved me in, in, in that direction, certainly. So, you know, in life, you never know what, 
what will happen to you and the way your life will turn out. Uh, it turned out maybe better for me. I would never maybe have done stuff that I have have done if I didn't have that accident. <laughs> so, but. And I mentioned uh, when I was going to talk to you, uh, I posted the fact that I wanted to ask you just to, to sort of tease people and their interest or pique their interest. We'll go before that terrible accident when you were cooking for heads of state, you had actually an offer to cook for John and Jacqueline Kennedy and decided instead to go with Howard Johnson's. Now, most people would yeah. look at that on the surface and think, was he nuts? He could have gone to the White House with the Kennedys, Camelot and all that. He went to Howard Johnson's. Right. What's about it? Yeah, but you, you, you have to look at it in the context of the time. It is different. I, when I was the chef for uh, the French president, it was under the Fourth Republic, the government was changing at a fairly rapid pace. And when I was with De Gaulle, I remember serving Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state at the time. Never once ever would they call you to get kudo in the dining room. <laughs> that did not exist. The cook was in the kitchen in his corner, and uh, I've never had an interview in my life where television barely existed, but uh, radio or, or magazine or newspaper, that did not exist you know, at, at all. So it was another world. So when I came to New York, I worked at the Pavilion, and uh, within a few months, early 1960, I was asked to go to the White House. And uh, I didn't really realize, to, to be truthful, I mean, the, the, the potential of that or what it represented, because I said, I have done that already. And, you know, I was at Columbia at the time. I was I a friend in New York. I said, I don't want to move again, change. And on the other hand, Mr. Johnson, Howard D. Johnson, was a regular patron of the pavilion. And he hired Pierre Frenet, who was the executive chef, to come. And Pierre left, and Pierre asked me, come with me. And that was, and uh, I ended up working there from 1960 to 1970. For 10 years, I was director of research and development. I've never done a recipe before that written down. I've never done, you know, I've never done production of food, marketing, chemistry of food, and all of this. So when I, when I left Howard Johnson, uh, in 1970, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie on Fifth Avenue, uh, which was a very high volume soup and all that that I did in production. Then I was the consultant for the Russian Tea Room for a while. And then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum, where we served 30,000 people a day. I set up the commissary and so forth. I'm saying all of that. I would never have been able to do any of those jobs without the training of Howard Johnson. So I learned a great deal there. It was another world, you know. At that time, people don't realize that the food, the, I mean, the, the cook was certainly at the bottom of the social scale. Any good mother would have wanted her, her, her daughter or son to marry a lawyer, a doctor, or certainly not a cook. <laughs> now I don't know what happened. We are genius, you know. So, uh, so it's changed. So when I did not go to the White House, uh, and I was an admi admirer of Kennedy, I'm a Democrat too, but uh, I have to say that I didn't realize uh, the context of the time. But, you know, to tell the truth, the person who went there was René Verdon, who was a friend of mine, who was a sous-chef at the Essex House in New York, and we called him, and he was interested, eventually he got the job there. And a year after, he sent me a picture with him, with the president, or uh, Mrs. Kennedy. I, would, I, I never had a picture with De Gaulle or anyone like this. So it was changing. But it was changing at the time, organic food, uh, too early 60, uh, women liberation, organic food, all those type of things were happening. If you ask, because I asked, who was the chef at the White House before René Verdon? 
but it turned out it was a black lady from the south. No one would have known her, no more than they knew me or whatever. So it was, you know, you have to look at it in the context of that time. Was de Gaulle as arrogant as uh, he seemed to be? Or was there no, a human side to him too? Do you no, know? Not at all. There was something to him. He was about five. It, it, was, it was about uh, six, 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 seven, whatever. And people don't realize he was almost blind. So he, he put his head down like that. He went to the kitchen. Or kind of, so you thought it was kind of <laughs> arrogant, but he couldn't see it. So, no, I remember uh, when I dealt with Madame de Gaulle, who called me Petit Jacques, you know, at the time. And I know when I left, uh, I told the Metro D that I was living and I was going to go to America. I had started doing the paper already. So he, uh, I remember that they asked me to come to meet them in the private room. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. De Gaulle, and uh, he wished me good luck, you know, the America and so forth. I remember he gave me a big cigar. I said, have that, smoke a cigar to my health. I mean, you know, that was another world at the time. So, uh, so no, he was, he was nice. I mean, to me, certainly. TJ wants to know, is there any archive of all the numerous shows that you have done, or where can we find the older series? Oh, if you go on the... The JP Foundation, the Jacques Pepin Foundation, there my son-in-law has all of the archive on Instagram or stuff. I know I, I do uh, those shows. You know, interestingly enough, too, during Christmas, Christmas this year, I was on a cruise uh, in the Caribbean uh, along with Oceania Cruise. Like I am, I am the culinary director of Oceania Cruise Line since the inception over 20 years ago. So... Uh, I know that on board there of the different ships, they have a channel here, the channel 16, 24 hours a day, it's me. They are, and I was looking at it, show that I did uh, before fast food my way. I mean, the, 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 I forget even the name, show that I didn't even remember, many shows that I've never seen. So I was interesting, but I think that all of those shows, you could access to them through the foundation, you know, so. It's good to know. Um, I just wonder sometimes when I think about all the accomplishments in your life, I mean, there were things I couldn't even cover in my introduction, like you're writing for years for the New York Times and so forth. Yeah. How do you, how do you keep your humility? Because mostly often people who speak of you say he's a yeah. humble man. He's a man whose yeah. feet are firmly yeah. planted on the ground. That, that That's not really true. I mean, I'm not, you know, we, I mean, as I said, the cook used to be at the bottom of the social scale. And now you have a young chef who have an article in the, in the New York Times and they say he's a genius and he believes it. So, you know, we're still a mashed potato maker, you know. <laughs> you can't take it too, too seriously, you know. So. so one of our listeners wants to know what you think of all the social media cooking stars. Some of them have no training at all. Are they helping or hurting our cooking skills? Sure. I mean, but, but it's fine. I mean, there was no cooking show before. Now I've been told there is over 400 cooking show in different ways. I frankly don't really look at them. Uh, and for me, a, a lot of them also is like competition. And I don't think that uh, this is really the way you teach people in the kitchen through competition, yelling at them and so forth, because uh, it's not really the way it works. But 
Uh, certainly, television is television, you know. And if you go to the uh, Thomas Keller, probably one of the greatest chefs in this country, three star. And if you go to his restaurant, whether Percé in New York or the French Laundry, you will see the camera will be there. There is no noise at all. Everything is clear. It's like a ballet. It goes back. It goes. The chef is ordering to. After ten minutes, the television says, "This is really boring. There is nothing going on." So. They, but this is the way it is in a great kitchen. So they create those kitchens where people are yelling at one another and so forth, too, because you have to have that. It's television and <laughs> those. But it's not really the way it works in a real kitchen. You have to appeal to the short attention spans. Uh, you mentioned yeah. Tom Keller. Uh, I remember interviewing him once years ago, and he confessed that he loved In-N-Out burgers, and I don't want to necessarily give them a free advertising plug here, but... Is there yeah. any, we were talking about fast food before, is there any fast food that Jacques Pepin particularly likes? I mean, conventional fast food. No, there is no food that I don't like. I mean, fast food on that doesn't make any difference for me. If you have a, a great hamburger, I love it, I love hot dog. People always ask me what would be my last meal. So, and my last meal would be very, 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 very long, you know, <laughs> and, and I would have hot dog and uh, egg. Uh, ham and egg and hot dog and caviar and squab and all the things that I like. So a lot of them would probably be fast food. What about recipes again? I was thinking there's an old question. What would you put in a space capsule if you could only choose, you know, two or three or even one recipe? What would it be? I certainly, as I say, would put bread and butter, the greatest possible bread, the greatest possible butter. It's hard to beat bread, bread and butter. I probably would have an onion, a tomato, and uh, move this way with things that I use basically every day, you know, so. Here's Frank from Austin, Texas, who says, did you see the French movie Delicious? And if so, what did you think of it? Delicious? No, I, no, I haven't seen that movie. It's, is that a new movie or an, an old movie? I don't know no. anything about it, but uh, some, he's got me curious now. I'll have to look it up after we are done talking here. But um, what about the, uh, another listener wants to know about the importance of spices in cooking? Very important. I mean, for me, the most important thing is salt. You cannot cook without salt. It changes the whole thing. On the other hand, you know, uh, people can easily over-season and so forth. If you over-season with nutmeg or stuff like that, that can dominate the whole dish. So it's a question of balance, but also a question of your own taste, you know. Sometimes you like this more than that. You know, we all are born in different parts of the world, or, or many of us, and the cooking that you have as a child is kind of very visceral, you know, it's very powerful. And those dishes that you taste as a child, that your mother made stay with you the rest of your life. And uh, so whether you come from, from Africa or, or Russia or whatever, then it's going to be different. And uh, for me, you know, if I taste the chicken that my mother made, the chicken with cream sauce and tarragon, I say, oh, that's my mother's chicken. Likewise, really in memory, you know, I would taste the, the striped bass of the pavilion in New York, I say, oh, that's the striped bass, of, or the lobster souffle of the Plaza Athene in Paris. You know, those tastes uh, come into your memory and stay there, but uh, certainly the taste of uh, the, the, the food that you have as a child are very, very important. They stay with you, and they become more than food, you know, they become... They become love, they become family, they become home, they become, uh, you know, very important in your life. Well, we I all think. have different tastes, though. I mean, taste is such a well, subjective thing, really, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. 
And, you know, it's always interesting when you go to another country and start testing the food. Oof. Very often, say, it's horrible. It doesn't. And in fact, you test again, you stand after a while. Okay, you understand, you know, I mean, the food is different depending where you're born and so forth. Be quite different, yes. And you mentioned bread and butter uh, for the space capsule. The staff of life <laughs> is bread, but people also are increasingly uh, eschewing and turning away from butter. They want substitutes for butter. No, no, there is no substitute for butter, for the bread <laughs> and you. butter in the world. And, uh, and frankly, you know, people get crazy when you use cream or butter. I put, I put uh, half a cup of cream into a dish and put, oh my God. Well, you know, butter is 100 calorie a tablespoon, I believe. Cream is about 50. But people put oil, and I put a lot of oil too. It's 130 calorie per tablespoon. So people will do a soup or, or do a salad and put three, four tablespoons of oil. It's like five, 600 calorie. And you put one tablespoon of butter and say, oh my God. <laughs> you know, so I never, I never worry about those things. No. There's Reed again, uh, who says, I recently purchased, and thanks to everybody for the questions that are coming in here, really some fine questions. And of course, the grace and charm of Jacques comes out in answering all your questions. He says, I recently purchased an induction range, and I love it. Has Jacques an opinion about induction cooktops? Yes, it's fine. I mean, this is what I use on the ship when I was there a couple of weeks ago because it's not allowed to have flame and so forth. Uh, but for me, there is something lost. You know, I mean... Maybe the greatest food is the food that you have in a, when you go and do a fire in the wood and uh, do a picnic there. I mean, you do something which is half burned and it never tastes as good in your life of anything there. So, you know, then I remember the cooking done in the fireplace, you know, when I was a kid to the smell and so forth. Then going to a gas stove that I have at least you see the flame. Then you move on to electric and something is lost. And by the time you get to induction, I lost something else too. I mean, that's for me personally. I like the smell and the flame and all that. You know, it's it's probably stupid, but <laughs> the way. No, it is. in fact, you know, it occurs to me when you were talking about taste and the difference in taste and all of that. It's all in the olfactory. So much of it has to do with smell. People don't realize oh, how much it has to do with smell. Yeah, it does. Yes, and you know, as I say, when you have a child, when you're a child, five, six years old, come back to school. And the best place is to go to the kitchen where your mother is cooking. And the smell that you have there and those tastes and all that stay with you the rest of your life, you know, without any question. Now, where else did you see food in French literature? Just could you point some of that oh, out to me? I mean, that well, was important and preeminent. Well, certainly in, in, in Proust, as you said. Yeah. But, uh, but you, you find it in, in, in Baudelaire, from Baudelaire, who yeah. has certain poem on food, you find it in the... Certainly in in Molière, you know, in 17th century. Balzac? 18th, in Balzac. Oh, yeah, yeah, in Balzac a lot. Certainly Balzac more than anything, 19th century. And it was interesting because uh, at that time, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, even some of the, the impressionist panther and uh, writer of the time were very interested in food and that cynical of food where they get together and eat. Food was really part of a certainly 19th century, very, very important part of a, of the literature in France and, uh, and uh, the food and all that. I mean, in Balzac, uh, Le Jardin de Paris, the, you know, the, you have uh, Léal, you know, the, that the place where 
by the food he wrote about it. He wrote about uh, in Zola also, you know, Emile Zola to a great A lot genius. of modern French writers too, like Simenon yeah. and, uh, comes to mind. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, or Simenon certainly, yes. But, uh, but even if you look at it in Sartre, also in another way, you know, the way he talks about food, or even Camus. I mean, Camus, uh, for me, was uh, important uh, when I lived in, in Paris. I, I, I work in a, in a brasserie in Paris, Montparnasse Square Sartre would eat there every day. So he was there with thick glasses to a book and he was eating. And of course, uh, at that time I was, what, 18, 19, and uh, the waiter told me, you know who that guy is? I said, no idea. Say his name is Jean-Paul Sartre, he's a great writer. I said, okay, well, I had absolutely <laughs> no idea who that was, too, and so forth. I did a master's thesis on Camus, actually on Camus and, and Thomas Carlyle uh, many years oh. ago. And uh, those were my heroes, those existential writers, Sartre and Camus. Yes. Well, Camus, Camus, in fact, I had a friend of mine here in Connecticut who, uh, who did a book with a hundred writers, each one of them asking, what is the book which changed your life? So I was one of them. And it was... I wrote about the myth of Sisyphus in Camus. Yes. So did so, I. That's my, that's right. my thesis was about the myth of Sisyphus, though. Oh, but. great! So, say so it's very interesting to see uh, to see uh, Sisyphus not only not when he push the rock up, because at that point he is really pushing and hard. But it's not when the the rock goes down by itself and he walks behind the rock. What he thinks about it at that point, you know. So you. So that's yes. where hope comes in. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and here's Jane from Seattle who says, of all the cookbooks you have written, do you have a favorite? Well, not really, because certainly the book remained. I wrote that technique in 19, I think seven, it came out in 75 or so. And it's a book illustrated manual of cooking technique, how to do one thing or another. And many chefs like Tom Colicchio told me, that's how I learned how to cook. Never went to high school. I learned through that book. So that book is still in print today, even though I don't cook the same way that I did 50 years ago. But uh, the way you, you, you peel an asparagus or you sharpen a knife or slice an onion is the same. So that's why those books of technique remain. So that book is probably maybe the book that I'm known the most for. You know, so, Are there any yeah. recipes in any of your books that you would like to edit at this particular oh, moment uh, we're in? Probably, yes. I would have to... You know, it's interesting for me because I, I look, sometimes I, I think of recipe, I say, oh, that's a good idea, I'm going to do this, 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 and that, and I do it. And I find it in a book exactly the same, you know, which I didn't realize 20 years ago. Sometimes my brain works the same, but sometimes it changes, you know. Quick question about Julia Child from TJ. Has Jacques seen the Lovely Max series about Julia? Was she as kind and generous a person as she is portrayed in the series? I don't know which series. Is that the last one? Uh, I, I, last I, didn't, I didn't see it, but he's really asking about her character. And Yes. Oh, uh, I mean, Julia, Julia, I met Julia in 1960, so like six months after I came here. So, in fact, we spoke French then when I met her. She just came from Paris, spent a couple of years in France, and her French was better than my English at the time. So I became friends with her a long, long time ago. At that time, she never had a book. She never did television or anything. She was starting doing mastery of French cooking. So uh, she was totally unknown. You know, and uh, I stayed friends with her and we did many shows. We cook at Boston University. In fact, in the 80s, 
Uh, I'm still teaching at BU. I will be teaching there in April. And I think that's 44 years or so that I go to BU. But in the 80s with Julia, we cooked together and we, we, we wrote to Silbert, John Silbert was the president of BU at the time. And Julia said, we have to do something with, with food, with gastronomy. So we created the master of, well, we wanted to do it undergraduate, we end up grading it in the graduate school, the Master of Liberal Arts with a concentration in gastronomy. And that program is still on now. So I'm very proud of it. And we, we had a good time doing it. Well, you have so much to be proud of. And you're, you know, remain a major educator in the culinary art, the culinary art uh, pronunciation yeah. can be preferred, I suppose. Uh, tomato, tomato. One last question and a vital question maybe. Are we what we eat? Yes, I would think so. We do. I mean, uh, whatever people eat kind of reflect their personality, who they are, and so forth. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think so. Well, you are a stellar figure and remain that, and uh, have a great deal of affection personally for you and and admiration. And I thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's been a delight. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, and happy cooking, everyone. Happy cooking. People say Happy New Year, and Jacques says Happy Cooking. And yes. thanks to all of you who joined us for this episode of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast, and to all who will be joining us on Apple, Spotify, or at graymatter.show. And again, that's gray with an E. And again, we welcome and ask for your support for this podcast. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll sign up for membership at graymatter.show and gain the benefits that come with being a member. We need your support. We is the inimitable Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, who I also want to thank Alex, Shannon, Colin, Kevin, Chad, Jeff, and Colleen, and special thanks to this episode's special guest, Jacques Pepin. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.